громко и четко. Я могу говорить. Давай. Я могу, могу. говорить. Women's Magazine. I'm Global Val, and you're listening to MutinyRadio.fm. We're broadcasting live out of the Mission District of San Francisco. It Happy spring. Uh, spring has sprung, and so have the clouds, and it is coming uh, lightly down onto the earth, the waters that we need so much in our state. Um, but we want to make sure that everybody stays safe out there, wherever you may be. Um, and look at look out for one another. So I want to thank you for tuning in today. I've been a little bit absent this month. Uh, we've been doing shows every other week, um, but earlier in the month I came down with a little seasonal something or other. So I thought it best to stay home on that particular day. So this is actually the only show I'm doing in the month of March 2019, which is a little bit bittersweet. Um, just remember, it's good to take breaks, everybody. But thank you so much for tuning in. I am very excited today. Uh, my guest, who's going to be calling in in just a few minutes. Gianna Taboni. She is a correspondent for HBO's series Vice News Tonight. Uh, she's been doing some amazing work. So uh, I'm really excited to have connected with her so we can talk about 
being a woman in journalism and some of the very serious issues and um, coverage that she's been doing, the investigations, the places where she's been embedded um, to report on things that often don't get the kind of depth of coverage that um, one may want. So thank you so much for tuning in. Um, that interview is going to start in just a few minutes. I am going to play a little more music for you here. The music you've been listening to is from a very cool local band called Brother Spellbinder. So here's a little bit more from Brother Spellbinder, uh, headed by Alzara Getz. So this is Women's Magazine. We do like to uh, amplify women's voices.
Welcome to Women's Magazine. I'm Global Val. Thanks so much for tuning in to MutinyRadio.fm today. As I said, we are broadcasting live from the Mission District of San Francisco. I'm really excited today. I have a really special guest who also happens to be from San Francisco. Um, today on the phone, and in just a moment, we're going to bring her on live, is Gianna Taboni. And she's a producer and a correspondent working across Vice News Tonight. That's the Emmy Award-winning nightly newscast and multi-award-winning Vice on HBO series. Over the last year, uh, Gianna's been covering the escalating cartel violence and political corruption in Mexico. Uh, She's been tracking down Nigerian pirates of their and their illegal oil refineries and she even interviewed a death row inmate um, she has also embedded herself with Egyptian tomb raiders uh, interviewed ISIS fighters investigated international surrogacy in India and investigated sexual assault on college campuses um, and it's Before she was joining Vice, she worked as a correspondent for Al Jazeera and a producer for ABC News. And in 2015, Taboni was named to Forbes' 30 under 30 list of media uh, jobs and spoke at a TEDx in 2014. She won a Webby Award in 2014 for Best Documentary Series for The Real, as well as a Glad Media Award for Church and States in 2017. I'm really pleased to welcome her to the show today, Gianna Taboni. Thanks, Val. Uh, hearing you read that, and thank you for the introduction, it it makes me realize that people probably think I'm completely insane. <laughs> um, but I appreciate the introduction. Right, I, I know, right? You, you you've done so many. You've you've put yourself into so many situations that other people wouldn't even even like think about right um which is part of what you're you know is inspiring about your work and is um yeah really moving you know it kind of wakes people up i think um you know i've been kind of looking forward to this uh conversation we're going to have and i've been telling people i'm like i'm interviewing gianna taboni she's been doing this 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 and they're like whoa um so yeah it's a lot of heavy hitting stuff um but so 
I'm, I'm really happy. Welcome in Women's Magazine. And, you know, I, you get to tell a lot of other people's stories um, through uh, your journalism. But today, we can talk to you a little bit more about your story in that context. Um, so maybe we could take a step back from, you know, tomb raiding in uh, Egypt um, and talk about how you got interested in journalism and then what brought you to Vice News. Yeah, uh, so as you said, I grew up in San Francisco. We grew up in the Richmond District on 6th and California, and my parents were always into the long news specials and documentaries, and so I feel like I sort of grew up watching uh, a lot of that. And then as I got into college, I started interning at ABC News, um, and that company was a great place to learn the foundations of journalism, um, and I had a lot of great mentors there. Um, but as one of the shows that I was working on sort of started to evolve into more entertainment news, I decided to quit, and I, I raised money on, on Kickstarter to do a documentary, which I didn't know how to do at the time. Um, but it was a story that I really hadn't seen anywhere else, and I had been pitching it, and nobody was into it. But it was a story of women and children in Haiti who had been abused and assaulted by the very UN peacekeepers who were there to protect them. And as a result, some of the women were having children, uh, you know, after being assaulted by, by these men. And so we raised money. I'm so thankful to all of the people in San Francisco who helped us raise that money. And we went down there into that documentary, um, and, and that uh, eventually ended up going on Vice, and that's how I started working on Vice and, and doing these documentaries. And do you still, do you, when you do a story like that, I mean, that was kind of your first documentary before joining Vice, but do you follow up with, with people afterwards? Have you um, maintained relationships with some of the folks who you encountered down in Haiti? We definitely follow up with a lot of the people we film with. In Haiti, it's, it's a little bit difficult um, because, uh, you know, people are so desperate there that they're not going to be buying phone credit to, to keep up with somebody like me. And um, so sometimes it works out, sometimes it, it doesn't, to be honest with you. Um, but recently we were filming with um, a transgender girl named Kai in Texas. And we I think we met her in 2015, and we've been following up with her um, pretty frequently. I, I'm probably in touch with the family every few weeks or so. And she's just an amazing person. She comes from a pretty incredible family, and we've done two documentaries on her um, so far. And and the reason I, I think their story is particularly important is because her mom, Kimberly, as she describes it, was a straight-ticket Republican. She was an evangelical um, minister, ordained minister, uh, just very much in a right-wing world, um, you know, born and bred in, in Mississippi and Texas. And then her daughter grows up, you know, and uh, tells her, Mom, I'm a, I'm a girl. And the mom said, no, you're not. You're a boy. You're a boy. Stop dressing in girl clothes. And she really fought it forever, and she didn't understand what it meant to be transgender. And this young trans girl, she just was so stubborn about it, and, um, and she fought and fought and fought. And now, you know, several years later, her mom, Kimberly, understands what she went through, what she's going through, and they ended up moving to Austin. And now they're in a school district that accepts them, which they didn't have in the town that they were in before in Texas. 
and um, I mean, really just a, a 180 for that family. And so we continue to stay in touch with them and um, and continue to tell their story. Well, those types of stories are so important, you know. I mean, you were talking about growing up watching, you know, various news hours and things. I remember growing up and watching like PBS and KQED and just just whatever the topic may be, just being exposed to something um, can really, you know, open open your mind. And so I, I think a lot of the work that you do is, is, is certainly opening people's eyes and minds. And hopefully, in like in the case of, you know, the mother being able to eventually open her heart to understand and, and to move forward and, and to, to choose love over whatever she was, you know, confusion she was holding on to um, so that they could have a happy family. Um, so I think a lot of the work that you do is is really important. So for people who aren't as, I mean, I, we, I listed a few things earlier, but for people who aren't as familiar with your work, um, do you want to talk about a couple of stories that you've done um, that have made a real impact on you personally? Sure. I, I feel very fortunate that I work at a company where I don't have one beat. I get to tell all kinds of stories um, all across the board, all around the world, and all different types of um, categories. And so most recently, I, I did a story on, as you mentioned before, a death row inmate in Nevada who had volunteered for execution. So he had raised his hand, which only 10% of death row inmates do, and said, look, I'm, I'm ready to waive my rights to appeal. I'm, I'm ready to be executed. And the state, over the course of more than two years, literally couldn't figure out how to execute him. I mean, they had poured almost a million dollars into a death chamber, and they couldn't acquire the drugs that they needed in order to execute him without drug companies suing them and trying to block them from using those execution drugs. And I was talking to him about three three times a week for about a year and a half, and just in January, he ended up hanging himself in his in his cell. Um, that story really impacted me because this wasn't an innocence project kind of story. This guy was convicted by a jury. He had done some bad things, really bad things. I mean, he was convicted of murdering two people. Um, but it but it forced me to ask myself questions like, is it okay to feel compassion for for someone who kills other people? Um, should the death penalty be legal when a state does not know how to carry it out, even if the voters voted for it? And so he, this man, Scott Dozier, I think he, he taught me a lot, and, um, and I feel lucky to have gotten to know him. Um, another story that had a big impact on me was we did, um, we did a story on sexual assault on American college campuses, and I, I met a young woman at the University of Arkansas, and she was raped by a star athlete there. And she started to go through the adjudication process on campus, and she trusted us enough to, to, to film it. So we gave her hidden cameras, and I think she felt that if something went wrong, if she was mistreated, which had happened to so many young women across the country, she wanted it documented. And so we were able to help her with that. And so she wore a hidden camera, and she went in, and she felt like she was mistreated. And, and so we brought the footage to Senators McCaskill and Gillibrand, who, of course, have worked on related legislation in the Senate. And they both watched it, and they were appalled. They were appalled with the way 
the administrators were asking her questions, what they were asking her. And months later, the Department of Education uh, put the University of Arkansas under federal investigation because of that case. Um, That one hit me hard because, you know, it, it just it's painful to see a young person get mistreated after after the worst thing imaginable happened to them. Um, so I, I felt lucky to be able to help her share her story. And then I'm, I know I'm long-winded here, but I'll give you just one more. When we were in India, we were doing a story on international surrogacy. And on the last day, we sat down with a surrogacy agent um, at a restaurant, and we filmed it all with hidden cameras. We didn't know exactly what she was doing, but we knew it was an underground deal. We knew that she was working on the black market. And she brought with her a 15-day-old baby. And we realized partway through the, the dinner that she was trying to sell us this baby. And and in that moment, we exposed this greater black market of not surrogacy, but of surrogacy agents implanting more embryos than is appropriate in surrogates. They deliver the babies and then they end up selling the babies. Um, So really just kind of a horrific practice. And um, months later, I I can't remember exactly the timeline, but India ended up outlawing international surrogacy. That is really, really powerful. Um, You know, those, those examples that you give, um, you know, the, the sexual assault on college campuses, such a huge issue, you know, in the way that, that young people, mostly women, but, you know, any young person um, is often treated when they try to report something like that. Um, and in this case, you know, being able to take that footage further, approach senators and, and follow through with that process. Um, but then in the case of being in that room in India. I mean, obviously you're you're a journalist and you know, to watch you, you're you're very cool and collected um and, but th- there are obviously those moments where you're having those personal and emotional reactions to what you're experiencing and what you're learning. How do you manage in those types of situations? What did you do in that when when they brought the baby into the room? I think it's really important. <clears throat> I think it's really important to to feel, to feel compassion for those around you, to have emotional reactions that are natural to human beings in those type of situations. So I don't try to block those emotions. I think they're important personally and professionally in, in telling these stories and understanding where people are coming from. At the same time, you have to keep your focus in those moments because you know, my job is to bring these stories to light, to educate a a greater population. So it's the balance of the two. You know, it's the balance of feeling what I'm seeing, um, you know, resisting the the urge to take the baby to a better place um, and and staying focused on, you know, this, the work in front of us, you know, and, and being able to capture what's happening, you know, in order to create change in a different way. Um, and I appreciate that you are, you know, really have this focus in your journalism of exposing things that can then, you know, bringing things to light that we can potentially change or, or debate. Um, I think that's really important. And one of the, one of the shows that you did, one of the 
stories that you did. I, I know that you've been covering um, the Rohingya re- refugees from Myanmar, from the massacres happening in Myanmar, um, and that your team uh, applied for visas to try to go to Myanmar and were denied. So you went to Bangladesh, where a, a lot of these Rohingya refu- refugees were coming to. And um, if anyone out there has watched it or not, um, it in short, um, you were there where people were registering for aid. They needed services. They needed food. Um, and the um, Bangladeshi I, you know, ministry or whoever was, was um, registering them were taking their biometrics, like their, their thumbprints and things like that, and giving them um, tags. But what you were able to discover was that not only were they you know, getting all their information, but it, it, it was potentially going to be used to repatriate them to Myanmar. Um, but the people who were registering didn't r- realize that. Um, and what, what did you do in that situation? I mean, we, uh, to, to watch, you, you know, you address the, the people who were registering them, but did you go back and, and, and just start telling everyone that what they were using that information for? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty perverse because, you know, these people were telling us that they would rather be killed right there than go back to Myanmar because they knew that what they faced back there was worse than just being killed where they were standing in that moment, which is horrific. And a lot of these people were young women with children. And so when we started to kind of see what was going on, we went to the person who was heading up the the operation there and we said, excuse me, are you doing this? You know, we really kind of challenged him and said, but you realize what they face if they go back, and you you are an accomplice in this if you continue to do this. And they were very combative, and, and they felt like, oh, you know, no, it's not a big deal. No one's going to be forced, but, but that's exactly what they were doing. And so, yeah, we went back and we talked to some of the people that we were talking to before, and we said, do you know that they're using this in order to repatriate you? Um, which is Which is hard because you're telling people that, the, the government has a plan, which which they had announced at that point, which we were able to to read in local publications, that they were planning to work with the Myanmar government to to repatriate them. So so yeah, we we certainly started talking about it. That is such a wild situation uh, to I'm sure to have been in um, because you I I feel like some people have an idea of journalism as you know go and tell the story, but like it's really about being part of the story and 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 kind of connecting those dots. Um, so I again appreciate what you do with with Vice because you get to kind of dig deeper and and get to those places. Um, so another another story that you did um, was that you visited Guantanamo Bay, which for many years after 9-11 was, you know, no, no press was allowed to go there. Um, it's still, uh, you know, a, a really huge and contentious um, thing in, in the United States. The fact that we have prisoners in, in uh, Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, um, many of whom were rounded up, arrested after the 9-11 um, Twin Towers, um, and just being held for years. Um, lots of uh, torture happening, ter- terrible things coming out of Guantanamo Bay. And then finally, they said, okay, journalists can come. So you were able to go to Guantanamo Bay. Um, and 
in one in one part you're you're being shown this like outdoor yard where prisoners were held and guards were stationed all of them being outside the only building unit that was there that had air conditioning you were told was for the guard dogs and it's a really powerful piece of information um and you kind of like at that point kind of turn to the camera like behind the guy's back and you mouth like what you know um so so we definitely see you uh and some and some of your um reactions uh to the situations that you're in um but this is kind of a variation on the previous question, previous topic. What do you do in those situations where you know that you're only being given it, given that limited or authorized information, or you feel like you're being fed propaganda? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what that moment was. I'm, I'm glad you read it that way. And throughout the whole tour at Guantanamo Bay, I mean, our entire story changed when we were there. We weren't going to make it a story about censorship by our own government, but it was unavoidable. I mean, our questions were interrupted. They were feeding us weird information like that. They couldn't tell us if all the prisoners were Muslim. You know, just very strange kind of things were happening. And so the story became about censorship. And in those situations, you know, usually you expect for that to happen in other countries or with, you know, government officials in other countries. But in that case, it was with, obviously, our military. Um, I think that the key there is just to continue pushing you know, it's just to continue pushing and challenging them. And when they don't answer a question, asking the question again or in a different way. Um, because what they want you to do is is to be satisfied with, with their non-answer. And um, and I think it's important, you know, to the extent that you can, just to continue, continue challenging them until you get some real information. Just on, on that note, what, what, were, what was the angle that you were uh, planning to to take with Guantanamo before everything kind of started to get weird, like like you mentioned? That's a really good question. You know, it was like five or six years ago, so I actually, I don't even remember. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I think that we were one of the first groups of journalists that was being uh, allowed in from the time that they weren't allowing journalists in. So I think maybe it was just kind of a more general piece going down there, seeing what we could see, asking about some of the allegations that, that uh, some of the detainees um, had told their lawyers about, you know, with regards to force feeding and, and torture and things like that, enhanced interrogation. So I think it was more focused on that. And we did hit some of those points, but we couldn't avoid this censorship point. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's very interesting and very telling. I mean, considering that no one was allowed to even go there for many years. Um, we, I, sorry, I, I could go on all day about that, but I won't. Um, <laughs> um, so we're here on Women's Magazine here, mutinyradio.fm, San Francisco. We're streaming around the planet on the internet. So this show um, I do here at Mutiny Radio, um, and I also contribute occasionally to uh, KPFA uh, 94.1 here in the Bay Area, Pacifica Radio. So the, the, the mission of Women's Magazine is to amplify women's voices um, because they're although women's voices are becoming louder and louder every day, there isn't always just an hour where it could just be, um, you know, women's perspectives on, on, on the world and, and work. So as a female journalist, 
What is that like in your in your field and the type of work that you do? Are there advantages and disadvantages? Do you feel like you have a unique position? Um, are there times where you uh, feel like you're in more or less uh, danger in a particular situation? How is that? What has that been like for you? That's a good question. And and first, I just want to say I believe so much in your mission and the work that you guys are doing. And as you said, as women's voices get louder, that's no time to to stop uh, shows like this. So I'm thrilled that you guys are doing what you're doing. Um, So I think that it's twofold. I think that there are advantages, like I think that women often have an easier time, at least I have, connecting with children and spending time and and making them feel comfortable in telling their stories, which can be really challenging. I think the same goes for women. You know, even if you're from a totally different country and culture and have almost nothing in common with, say, the Ugandan person, woman sitting across from you, there are moments where you realize that there is this sort of universal bond among women. You know, it could be something as simple as, sitting with this person who you don't even speak the same language, but you hear, you know, one of the 10 men in front of you say one thing and you exchange a glance and, you know, we get it. You know, it's it's just one of those things you can't really explain, but I do feel that bond and I feel very lucky to be able to share that bond with so many women around the world. Um, And then I think that there are disadvantages too. Um, You know, when you're in very conservative countries or communities, some of which exist in our country, men won't look you in the eye. Sometimes they don't take you seriously in your position. I've had men tell me that they won't do an interview with me because I'm a woman. Uh, that happened with the head of Hevazad uh, al-Islam in, in Bangladesh. So there certainly are challenges. Um, and by the way, what I ended up doing was I sent our local producer, who was a man, in to interview him, but I just texted him every, or no, I was on speakerphone, and I think I just fed him every question. (laughs) So he asked the guy all the questions, (laughs) and that, for me, was enough satisfaction to to feel okay about the interview in the end. But there certainly are disadvantages, and I think that there, there are security risks for women that don't exist for men. You know, sexual violence usually isn't, um, usually isn't a, a risk that men have to think about. And, and um, myself and my female colleagues, we certainly have to think about that in a lot of the places that we go. So I think it's twofold. It, it's a good question, and I've thought about it before. I'm just thankful that we live in a time where my supervisors are never going to not send me somewhere and send my male colleague ahead of me because of gender. That that is that is good news. <laughs> that definitely is good news, and it's it's interesting to to speak with you. I mean, you've been all over the world. I've traveled extensively as well, and so I think when you know you, you and I can have a conversation about these, you know, when you're in a, a you know you're a stranger in a strange land, um, and and when it's a culture that's completely different from you, you know, there's there there are certain ways to kind of center yourself and and make yourself you know a kind of you know put put some sort of little bubble around yourself to like keep yourself safe and sane and alert and aware. Um, but I think it's it's maybe harder for people who haven't been to really far away places to kind of get what that's like. Um, but I think that people can certainly relate to um, 
just being, and, and women I think can relate to just being in a place where uh, there is a level of discomfort, whether you're the only woman or whether all women in a certain place are being um, kind of treated or not treated in a certain way. Um, right. So uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm always a proponent of women traveling around the world um, so that we can experience things and gain perspective. And the work that you're doing is um, some real hard hitting perspective. Um, do you want to talk about some of the things that you're working on right at, at, you know, these days, some of the investigations you're working on, the stories? It's a good question. I, I probably shouldn't, but that's I will. fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you can't, you know, it's okay. <laughs> no, I, there's uh, one story that I care a lot about that I, I don't know how I will do it, but it's a story of Saudi and Emirati women who are fleeing both of those countries um, because of guardianship laws and mm. because of how they're treated just because they are the gender that they are. And mm-hmm. these young women are so strong and courageous and impressive and you know, many of them have made it out and are living in Western countries, including the U.S., and many of them don't make it out or are forced back once they do escape. I feel so strongly about that story, and so I'm going to find a way to tell it. Excellent. Well, I I have a, a, a student who um, is in that has experienced that. So, so wow. I, we'll connect further on that. I think that's a really important tale great. to be told. Um, yeah, actually, just on that note, um, I was interviewing her about a year ago, and um, it was it was right before um, the Saudi, the Saudi prince um, declared that women would be allowed to drive, and so what what, what happened was that women had been organizing a day of um, protest. They were going to drive on. October 23rd, uh, 2018, I believe, or I think it was 2017, actually. Um, There's so much that happens, I kind of lose track. But um, so the Saudi government came out one month ahead on September 23rd and announced to the world that they were going to allow women to drive. So it kind of, you know, assuaged people's, you know, fear and, and, you know, dismay that women couldn't drive. They're like, oh, well, they're going to let women drive now. But they... still don't let women drive. Um, and then like about a month later on state run television, they came out and reprimanded all the women who had been trying to organize this. And so, um, yeah, it's, there's a lot of, you know, things that, that really, uh, are kind of inflammatory, (laughs) um, and that topic. But, um, I want to get back for just, if we have a couple more minutes, um, uh, about kind of like your process, but in terms of, self-care because traveling can take a lot out of you the types of situations you're in obviously it can be very stressful at times Um, how do you how do you you know maintain your your energy and your balance uh, over the years you know hopping on and off planes for most of uh, most of my life uh, I've learned to understand my body better and so everything from sleep and rest to food and alcohol and caffeine, how I'm going to feel after a flight, things like that, and how each of those things, you know, affect my body. And then using meditation and and yoga to kind of help balance balance myself and and keep my energy up, all of those things have been sort of invaluable in in, um, making sure that I can continue doing what I'm doing. 
Well, those are very wise words and certainly appreciate uh, you sharing that. Um, last question. Any advice for women out there, women, girls interested in the field of journalism, what kind of advice would you give to them? Uh, give them hell. <laughs> you know, people <laughs> are going to be telling you no. They're going to be, uh, you know, discouraging you, discrediting you, um, and you just kind of have to push past it. Even recently, you know, I... I'm at a point in my career where a lot of people may think that I don't hear the word no or don't have people, you know, uh, express doubt in my stories. And it happened the other day, and I was sort of teaching this lesson to one of um, my male colleagues just that, look, this is a perfect example of when you believe in a story so much and people are throwing shade, you just got to push through it all. You just got to push through it all and make it happen. And in the end, if you get the access and you set it up perfectly and they don't want it, you know, that's, that's their problem, but you just have to keep pushing ahead. And now, you know, we're going to Rwanda on Sunday and we're doing the story. So I think the key is just not taking no for an answer. It's raising your hand. It's asking for things that, that you want, opportunities that you want, um, and just going after it. My mom always told me, you know, you're going to be told uh, no a hundred times before you get that yes you know, going to job interviews, they're, you know, you're going to get not hired 20 times before you get that one opportunity. So it's all about perseverance. Um, and I think that lesson has, has stuck with me and, and really helped me. Well, Gianna Taboni, I am so grateful for you calling in today all the way from the East Coast. Um, and uh, thank you for all the amazing work that you're, that you're doing and look forward to the things that are, that are to come. So what's the best way for people to tune in to your work? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Val. Keep up the great work. I love what you guys are doing. Um, yeah, we have a show on HBO, Vice News Tonight, as you said, and we have some other big projects that we're getting ready to announce. So um, maybe the best way is to follow me on Twitter, at Gianna Taboni. Excellent. We'll, we will. And um, to be continued, just know that you always have a, a voice and a home here on Women's Magazine here in San Francisco on MutinyRadio.fm. Wonderful. I'll be back. All right. Thank you so much. Good luck with Thanks. your new projects. Thanks. All right, folks. Thank you so much uh, for tuning into Women's Magazine today. That's so cool to talk to Gianna Taboni. She is doing such amazing work. Um, no wonder she was named one of 30, 30 under 30 to watch uh, just a couple years back. Let me play a little music so we can... Uh, you know, kind of get our energy, keep keep our energy up, as she was talking about. And uh, here's a little music from Pamela Parker and her fantastic machine.
You are listening to Women's Magazine. I'm Global Val here at MutinyRadio.fm, streaming around the planet on the internet, straight to you. Thank you for listening. And I want to thank a huge thanks to my guest, Gianna Taboni, um, from HBO's Vice News. She's doing amazing work in journalism, uh, a really inspiring uh, young woman um, who is not afraid to to get out there and tell important stories and take that information and try to change the world. And that, my friends, is what it's all about. So um, I'm really excited. And you are listening. It is March 22nd. So welcome again to spring. Um, I was walking on the beach the other day here in San Francisco. And it's kind of cool because the beach wall, um, you know, that actually faces the ocean, like right down in the sand, there's actually some really amazing graffiti on that wall. Um, I, you know, I don't like, you know, I don't want anyone to spray paint, you know, my car or my house or anything. Like, I don't support just tagging. But there's actually, but I, but I do appreciate graffiti, and you know, you see it all over the world, and we get the, you know, expression, the writings on the wall. Um, so it, it, there's some truth to that. And so there was some graffiti on the wall the other day that it was a little hard to read. I'll, I'll admit. Um, but it was something about, you know, the, the ignorant rules, <laughs> man-made ignorant r- rules. So um, that just to me sounded very poetic. And so I wrote a poem about it uh, because I, I'm a poet and that's what I do. Um, so as a, as a little bit more of a teaser and to let you know, in the terms of poetry coming up next on the Common Thread Collective, uh, we're actually going to be hosting our Poet Laureate of San Francisco, Kim Shuck. Um, she's going to be our guest um, starting at around three o'clock. She's out there waving right now. Um, and she's going to be telling us about uh, a month of celebration for Maya Angelou. And uh, so poetry is is in the air, it's in the streets, it's on the wall. And soon in City Hall, April is National Poetry Month. We're organizing the 14th annual Poems Under the Dome, the San Francisco's largest open mic poetry event in San Francisco in the biggest possible civic place we can get. And you are invited on Thursday, April 18th. Um, 5.30 to 8 p.m. And it's going to be a great night. We hope you'll come out and join us. It's free. It's all ages. We encourage you to bring the kids, bring grandpa, you know, bring whoever you want, bring your kooky friend who doesn't get out of the house. Um, It's going to be fun. And what you can do is you come and if you'd like to read a poem, you may put your name in the big magical green hat at the back and we'll be drawing names uh, throughout the night for people to read. We do ask that people read just one poem and that it not be your epic uh, poem. You know, keep it under three minutes and only one, please. So if you got a haiku, thank you for the 17 syllables. We have more room for the next people. So Poems Under the Dome coming up April 18th. There'll be more on that soon. Without further ado, here is the poem that I referenced before. Poetry is on the pavement, like birds in the sky, and I, a witness, walking along concrete walls, built to keep the sand in. How well is that working? No match for the wind, everything is temporary. Paint cries for freedom and hopes it will carry over all ignorant rules. Man-made roles set up to someday lose. The question is, how soon? And what are you going to do? 
I'm Global Val Ibera. Thank you so much for listening to Women's Magazine today. And remember, just when your aspirations seem outrageous, like I'm going to follow my dreams and I'm going to expose important issues around the world and I'm not going to take no for an answer until I get to do it and do it well, hey, inspiration is contagious. So peace. Thank you. I'm going to play some more music from Pamela Parker, a little more music from Brother Spellbinder. And at three o'clock, the Common Thread Collective will be heating up here at Mutiny Radio. We hope you will join us at 2781 21st Street. We are in the Mission District. It is March 22nd, 2019. And you're beautiful.